1: Welcome to On The Move, a look at the latest in transportation technology and all the different ways we get around planet Earth and beyond. From NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory near Pasadena, California, here's your host, Alex Stone.
2: Welcome to the sprawling campus of JPL in the oak-covered foothills just outside of LA. While you may be driving or flying somewhere, here they're thinking well beyond that turnpike toll booth or that connecting airline gate. These are the space scientists and engineers working on other worlds. And as I'm finding out here today, worlds that may just be beginning. Wow, look at that. We are walking inside High Bay 2 here at JPL, a clean room where spacecraft are built. Workers below in white suits carefully building a spacecraft that this time next year, if all goes according to plan, will be far away from Earth and on its way to an asteroid in deep space. The asteroid is unique because it's not made of rock or ice. For the first time, humans will be exploring a world made of metal.
3: There's this one asteroid of just a handful that appear to be made mostly of metal and there's only one that's really big and mostly round and that's Psyche.
2: Lindy Elkins-Tanton is a vice president at Arizona State University and the lead of the NASA Psyche mission, a spacecraft being built right now about the size of a car that will explore the asteroid named Psyche.
3: The mission of Psyche is so exciting to me as you might imagine. It's always a thrill to talk about it every single time because it's so exciting to me.
0: With the proximity of the asteroid.
2: For humans, asteroids asteroids have long been objects of mystery and doom. Like in the 1998 film Armageddon, crashing into Earth, a threat to humanity.
4: You could fire every nuke you've got at her and she'd just smile at you and keep on coming.
2: In fact, changing the path of an asteroid is something NASA is working on. The DART mission underway right now is designed to test how much force it would take to crash a spacecraft into an asteroid to redirect it. The idea being bumping it just a bit could avoid a disaster-causing collision between an incoming rock and Earth. But that's not Psyche. Psyche is about understanding the origins of a planet. It's gained so much attention and excitement, the Psyche mission even inspiring music submitted from around the country.
3: I had been a field geologist and I'd been an experimentalist, and really just a pure academic scientist and then a theorist. And I was trying to understand how rocky planets like the Earth got built why do we have this metal core why do we have this rocky exterior why is our planet habitable what happened in the earliest part of the solar system that built these planets that amazingly sprang this one sprang to life and we got this idea that there was a particular moment in formation super early long before the earth existed where the very first small little bodies like miniature planets they're called planetesimals actually formed a metal core because they melted and a rocky exterior the very first time a body in the solar system got the same structure as now the giant earth has. And that's what we wanted to study.
2: There are very few objects in space that could show the exposed metal center of a planet. Psyche is one between Jupiter and Mars that humans can reach and orbit while flying through space to maybe understand the formation of Earth. The
3: amazing thing about it is we don't really know what Psyche is. We've got data from Earth that we're pretty sure we're aiming at the right thing in terms of having a lot of metal and being really, really early made, but no one's been to a body like that before. We have no photographs. We get so spoiled, we think we have pictures of everything, right, we'll just Google it, there'll be a photograph. There's no photograph, no photographs have ever been taken. That's the part that I think is super exciting. We're exploring a new kind of world that humans have never visited.
2: It's in the main asteroid belt. It could be an early planet, maybe an iron-rich building block, Henry Stone is a JPL project manager in charge of getting the spacecraft built. He has to make sure it's ready to fly next August out of Florida.
5: How do I lay out a plan and a schedule that accounts for all the work that needs to be done to a hard launch date? This is a planetary launch, we don't get to move it around, it has to go, the planets are aligned waiting for us. And how to structure a team and lay out a schedule that's going to get us there and has the necessary schedule margins, cost margins, reserves, and things like that to deal with all these problems that you cannot necessarily foresee.
2: Every mission to space has problems, things come up, they are building the science to do something never before done, In this case, going into deep space to orbit a potato-shaped asteroid with unique properties of gravity. Hundreds of people are helping to plan the mission and build the craft. The teams from Arizona State University, JPL, and NASA are trying something new. Rather than building the spacecraft totally from scratch, they're working with a company called Maxar that has long-built satellites that orbit Earth, but their satellites don't go into deep space. This team thought they could save time and money if they could repurpose what Maxar already does and turn it into a deep space type satellite around Psyche.
5: And so they know how to do Earth orbiters. Comsats are or Earth orbiters, right? What we needed to do though is figure out how are we going to take that big bus structure and fly it to deep space? The fault protection, remember, an Earth orbiter, you're going around, they communicate with it all the time. Has a problem, they get a command from the ground do this, do this, do this to fix it. And they can communicate with very little time delay as often as they want. We don't have that luxury. And the farther and farther it goes out, the less and less information we can afford to send back and diagnose the problem.
2: And so Maxar and JPL have built the craft together. It will also test a new kind of communication system that uses photons instead of radio waves to send back data Going into high bay two with JPL, I got to see the Psyche spacecraft firsthand. So tell me what we're walking into right now.
5: This is one of several high bays at the laboratory that are used for the final integration and test of entire spacecraft or large portions of a spacecraft, like uh, large instruments and things like that. This is incredible. Okay, so that's what a spacecraft looks like.
2: His teams in their white suits in the clean room are busy hooking up and testing components of Psyche. It looks like a car-sized box with a large dish on the front and some gadgets coming off of it. The solar panels that will help power the spacecraft are not yet
6: attached.
5: Every single component needs to be added one at a time and a whole bunch of testing. Make sure it's all checked out before you put every electrical connection. Immense testing of every single wire before you, because if you turn it on and you got it wrong, you'll blow something up and it could cost millions and millions of dollars.
2: And then soon the craft will go into intense testing. It will go into a chamber to test the vacuum of space to make sure it can withstand that. Vibration test to simulate launch. A freezer to make sure it can be in the cold of space if all goes according to plan it will head to florida in a few months to prepare for next summer's launch
5: there'll be parts in there that are super hot or super cold because in space depending on which way you're facing right so we simulate that we take the temperatures way way down then we take them all the way up
2: out in space it will take over three years to get there and psyche will slingshot around mars to get a boost
5: we are mars is giving
3: us a gravity assist kind of like when you're ice skating and you're at the end of that chain (laughs) It's gonna whip us around.
2: Isn't that cool what you're doing? I, I mean, can you, believe You're it. gonna send the spacecraft out. It's gonna <laughs> slingshot around Mars, go out into deep space and, yep. and find in the vastness of space, this speck. speck of sand that's out there.
3: Can you believe that people can do that?
2: As principal investigator on the project, this is Lindy's baby. She had to compete to get NASA to accept the project, For a decade, she's been working to get to this point. Because
3: if we as humans can have the audacity and the optimism to do these kinds of engineering and technical wonders, then think of what we can really do here on Earth. That is the purpose of exploring space is that inspiration. It drives technology forward. It helps us be braver humans.
2: Next summer, Henry will see the spacecraft he built disappear into deep space, but he says it's only the beginning. In three years, when data begins coming in, it's going to be incredible.
5: If we can show that all of the science data lines up to say that is the core of an early planet that solidified, it got the all the rocks and everything blown off it based on these models of the amount of collisions that were occurring back in that very chaotic time right first few hundred million years of the formation of the solar system that would be huge but you know if it's not that we will discover that it is something so unbelievably new right it'll be some primordial agglomeration of metal or whatever it is i don't have all the science terms for it but the likelihood of that is so much lower that if we discover that, thats you could almost argue that's even a greater thing to have found. So I think either way, it's a win you know, for the project and NASA and, and everybody, right? If we find something that's never, ever been seen before of all the different type of asteroids that, that we study, that'll be cool.
2: The future of transportation. What is it? For years, a fantasy has been flying cars or highways in the sky. But one possible solution for packed freeways and terrible traffic is taking us underground. ABC's Jason Nathanson is talking tunnels.
4: Like most legendary tales, it starts with a tweet. Almost five years ago, December 17th, 2016, a frustrated Elon Musk was sick of his daily commute in Los Angeles along the 405 freeway, the busiest freeway in the world. So he wrote, Traffic is
7: driving me nuts. I'm going to build a tunnel boring machine and just start digging.
4: Yes, that's Elon Musk's tweet read by an online artificial intelligence Casey Kasem, because why not? And that's how The Boring Company came to be. While Musk was busy with Tesla and SpaceX, he also started a company that built a large cylinder that would spin slowly underground, making a car-sized tunnel. The tunnels could be built faster and cheaper than current tunnels, millions of dollars per mile instead of billions, in months rather than years. The early plans were ambitious. The tunnels would take passengers to LAX, to Dodger games. Something called the Hyperloop would put people in autonomous electric pods, whisking them between cities at 600 miles an hour. Soon, though, the boring reality of permits and environmental impact reports and other factors set in, and today, five years later, no one in LA is going anywhere by tunnel. No one in LA. Can we take
8: Welcome
9: to Las
4: Vegas. A short 45 minute flight from Los Angeles, though, in Las Vegas, the boring company's first tunnel system, Moving Passengers, opened for business this summer at the Las Vegas Convention Center.
10: We needed a solution to help move our customers around the convention center in a convenient, quick way, but we also wanted it to be a fun experience.
4: Lori nelson Kraft is the Senior Vice President of Communications at the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority.
10: At the end of the day, our board of directors voted for the Boring Company solution of tunnels underground that ferry our attendees to one of three passenger stations, and it does it in a quick, efficient, and entertaining, only Vegas-style kind of way.
4: Four stories below the convention center, the Boring Company built a series of tunnels, The tunnels just bigger than the size of a Tesla, and you get driven between three stops in a Tesla by a driver. Let's check it out. Right now I'm entering from outside the convention center and going down a long escalator into the LVCC Central Station. There's a sign that says LVCC Central Station, pick a car, any car, tell the driver your destination, west or south station, And number three, enjoy the
10: ride. This is the middle passenger station of three. It's the only one underground.
4: So now I'm sitting in the back of a Tesla, going through a tunnel 40 feet underground. How fast are we going?
11: we will go 40 on the straightaways.
4: Okay, we're going 40 miles an hour right now on a straightaway. The tunnel is very close on either side. I mean, there's not a whole lot of room for error here. But it's wide enough to go through to travel through comfortably looks like it would take a little bit of practice to go through here and navigate some of these turns. The tunnel walls are kind of white and stark and futuristic. And as you go through, it's kind of like a ride. It's a little bit like Space Mountain at Disneyland. It does feel a bit futuristic. Using the tunnels to get around the convention center is cool, but this
11: is just the beginning, a proof of concept. What the Clark County Commission, which I serve on, did was approve a franchise agreement with the Boring Company to potentially expand that system out to 51 stations uh, regionally, largely around our resort corridor.
4: Clark County Commissioner Michael Knapp just voted to get those tunnels going under all the big hotels and hot spots in Las Vegas. 29 miles of tunnels, the first station being at the massive new Resorts World complex across the street from the convention center. Each hotel or stop would pay for the construction of their station, and the boring company is paying for the rest, the building of the tunnels. Passengers would pay for their trip like you would on a subway or a bus. NAFT sees this as a way to alleviate traffic as Las Vegas continues to grow
11: and sprawl. The beauty of, like I keep saying, uh, of this fast, efficient, cheap uh, way of boring a hole is that it can be expanded to our residential and suburban communities. That's certainly my hope uh, and desire for to see for to be in a, a true transportation alternative for people who live in our communities. Don't forget, so many of our residents do still work on the Strip, uh, so to provide an opportunity for them to get to work uh, this way would be a, a wonderful outcome.
4: Do your consent tell you that they want that? Will they get out of their cars and actually get into a tunnel?
11: I think more and more people, the demographics are changing. More and more uh, millennials want to see uh, alternatives and younger generations who don't want to fool with having a car. You see a lot of couples now with one car per family uh, because there are so many alternative transportation options already available to them. So by expanding that, I do think we'll we'll help more people get out of their personal vehicle and into uh, more of a sharing economy.
4: Bruce Springsteen could be singing about Commissioner Naft, Tease all in on the tunnel idea, but not everyone is as enthusiastic. I have a lot of questions. You have questions and concerns, it sounds like.
12: I absolutely do.
4: Carolyn Goodman is the mayor of Las Vegas, and as we sat in her office, through floor to ceiling windows, she has a great view of the constant traffic on the various freeways and interchanges that circle the city. She knows Las Vegas needs a solution for its packed roads, but she's not yet convinced that solution comes from Elon Musk's Boring Company.
13: The beauty of the dream is magnificent, but the issues and the problems um, of something that is not on a controlled technological rail or something, and then having to have a driver. We can't get truck drivers to move the freight out of the harbors for heaven's (laughs) sakes. And then there's safety. The batteries have been known to catch fire. And what, where are those escapes that everybody that's behind the one vehicle in this one tunnel that's stuck, what happens to all that ridership? We're trying to move hundreds, if not thousands of people underground here.
14: This would be no different then if you look at uh, subterranean or tunnel-based uh, mass transit systems, such as in Washington, D.C., you have the metro. In San Francisco, you have BART.
4: Dr. Shashin Nambishan is the director of the Transportation Research Center at the University stores. of Nevada, Las Vegas, and he's excited by the tunnels. He agrees that there's a lot that needs to be studied, but he says the potential of getting thousands of cars off the road would have obvious benefits.
14: The locals and others who drive on the surface road networks will benefit from that because of the reduced levels of congestion. With reduced congestion come other environmental and energy benefits, reduced fuel consumption, reduced uh, adverse environmental impacts. Is this a
4: magic bullet solution for traffic and for congestion?
14: No, this is uh, only a part of a bigger picture, okay? And uh, from a cost perspective, I'm not sure that this is sustainable all across the United States or in all jurisdictions.
4: Uh, What about flying cars? Is that going to help? Is that coming?
14: It is coming. The Jetsons are coming. (laughs) That's what I wanted to hear. No, I don't know when. Dubai is uh, looking at, has been looking at, and there are several areas that are looking at flying taxis or flying vehicles.
4: But so in our lifetime the jetsons scenario do you do you see that happening
14: Uh, not in urban travel uh, not in my in my remaining lifetime so for now get more comfortable with going
4: underground rather than in the air las vegas has the tunnel vision just like justin timberlake fort lauderdale looking into getting a tunneling project going and the boring company is reportedly submitting plans for tunnels in san antonio so it'll be a while before we're all zipping around underground but If you're going to a convention in Las Vegas,
1: the future is already here. You're listening to On the Move from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Alex Stone.
2: Have you been on a train lately? More people are saying yes because Amtrak is seeing an uptick in popularity and federal funding just in time for holiday travel. Here's ABC's Derek Dennis.
15: The roar of a commuter train, the rush to get there from here. You just shout out, basically, just bored. It's the preferred mode of transportation for millions of long distance commuters since the 1800s. But after years of declining ridership, Keystone
16: Train number 643 to Harrisburg.
15: Amtrak trains are experiencing a bit of a resurgence thanks to COVID 19, rivaling air travel and cars. I love train travel, <laughs> no traffic. <laughs> I'd rather be on the train. Eugene Falconer of New York is one of those travelers leaving his car parked and riding the rails. But his dream? I'd like to take one to California, actually. Yeah. That's a long way. Yeah, but you get to see the country for many others. The reality is the train is just more convenient
13: only because I live far away and I it takes about five hours to drive.
15: Marion Siegel lives near Boston, but was on the train to New Jersey, visiting her son. Driving is just too much for her and flying in a pandemic. I don't feel safe.
13: No, I don't. I would feel safer in my car, but it's it's tiring.
15: Jim Matthews is president and CEO of the National Rail Passengers Association and says train travel is up.
17: Partly because it was considered a safer mode. Uh, you weren't sitting in... You know row 187 K with an inch between you and the person sitting in the middle seat next
15: to you. But Matthew says measuring the uptick in train travel is complicated. At the height of COVID, less trains were running by design, but those that were running were packed and on long distance trips. One thing that
17: we saw was a huge increase in the number of sleeper and private room bookings that Amtrak got, people were flocking to those kinds of
15: accommodations. Over the summer, Amtrak's travel numbers were the best they've seen in the first 18 months of COVID. More than 1.8 million travelers in July, 1.5 million in June. Adding to the increase in popularity, attention from Washington, including from President Biden, nicknamed Amtrak Joe. Hey,
0: guys. Back
18: on
15: Amtrak. He's long been a champion of Amtrak, taking the train almost daily between his home in Delaware and D.C. During the decades he served in the Senate, doesn't hurt
17: when the occupant of the White House waves the flag and says trains are the way to, to go.
15: Add to that Biden's recently passed infrastructure bill earmarking 66 billion dollars for rail, fueling what could be the biggest expansion in Amtrak's 50-year history.
17: We've seen uh, really bipartisan. Or embracing passenger rail for different reasons, but in the end embracing passenger rail and what it can
15: do. It's all adding up to a resurgence in Amtrak ridership and New York to Washington train traveler, Joe Mensa says that's a good thing. It's vital, you can't do without it, it's vital. Derek Dennis, ABC News
2: in the airline industry there's a move toward going green across the board some of the biggest airlines are trying to show they're thinking about the environment when that plane rolls down the runway united's new commitment to be 100 percent green by the year 2050 united is one airline making a commitment but few are going full steam ahead it's
13: time to prepare for departure please make sure your seat back and trade table are up
2: One that is is Alaska Airlines from its new environmentally friendly headquarters near Seattle, airline executives are reevaluating every item their crews serve on their planes and they're replacing many of those items. Alaska is making a commitment for net zero carbon emissions by 2040, and Alaska is inviting other airlines to come along with it.
9: Sustainability is a place that we all recognize that we need to scale. We will always compete in terms of everything. Costs, guest service, best network, best product, all of that. That's sort of the nature of competition. And the idea of competition is it should make everybody better because you're all sort of challenging each other.
2: Diana Burkett Rocco is a vice president at Alaska Airlines in charge of sustainability. And she says for her team, it's not just about putting out a good message of change, they're actually doing it. All right, I'm gonna open it up. This is a box of water. Including changing up how water is served on Alaska's planes. It's good, tastes like water. Instead of serving bottled water, Alaska has teamed up with a decade old company out of Holland, Michigan called Boxed Water. It's like a milk container of water and the airline says it had good reason to make the change.
18: The biggest issue that we were having is single uh, use plastics, right? Because inevitably, even if you have the best recycling program possible, A percentage of that plastic is going to end up in the landfills and even into the oceans, right? And so we know the the issues that that causes to the marine life.
2: Todd Trainer corey is Alaska's Managing Director of Guest Products. If you think about a plane on which they're handing out bottles of water, that's a lot of plastic water bottles that if not recycled, they're not very biodegradable. The airline was determined it could do better. We
18: looked at things like water in a can, right? We had challenges with that because you can't seal it up again, and it actually may taste a little bit different. We looked at different types of water packaging, like pouches or other types of containers that maybe were not necessarily fully plastic but didn't really have any sustainability and we really pointed towards box water as the leader in kind of innovating the way that you can package water with a more sustainable solution
2: and so the company boxed water turned out to be a partner that met alaska's need their milk-like boxes have screw tops on them so somebody can close the water and reuse a container darren kuypers is
0: founder and ceo of boxed water this is a very visible change it's not a free change uh, we are a premium water that's out in the industry, and Alaska saw that and saw that we are doing better. Our lifecycle analysis shows that, and um, the, a super high big kudos to Alaska for actually stepping up and making the change away from plastic and into cartons and specifically boxed water.
2: Now airlines don't do anything abruptly. The two companies spent many months figuring out if handing out boxes of water made sense.
18: And we got really good feedback. We started to survey our guests and understand how they felt about Box water, the taste.
2: In fact, interestingly, COVID created an opportunity while flights were less full, pretty much empty for months during the start of the pandemic and business was down, that allowed the airline to try some things. Alaska did things like switching away from bottled water, redesigning its food packaging, and even in-house changing up the cups of water and other
18: drinks go in. So we partnered to really find a more sustainable cup and we just sourced a simple paper cup that is meant for cold and hot liquids actually but we're going to use it for water maybe
2: something you wouldn't even notice a simple paper cup in coach no more plastic cups paper can break down easier one issue they found though is that certain adult beverages will eat through paper cups they haven't found a fix for that yet but they're working on that it's not perfect just yet
18: we're going to continue our journey to find a uh, paper cup that can actually hold alcohol, but that doesn't have plastic liners in it that would defeat the purpose. Now on all
2: Alaska Airlines flights, paper cups and the boxed water as of this month are being deployed, and the airline and executives at Boxed Water say they hope more airlines decide to follow what they're
0: doing. They're excited to be the first, but they believe the industry is ready and needs this.
2: And get this, these numbers are mind-blowing. Alaska Airlines says it's removing 1.8 million pounds, or 18 Boeing 737's worth of weight in plastic off its plane every year by making these changes less weight means less fuel burned and lower carbon output a few of the world's wealthiest businessmen have been spending the past several years transforming transportation in space and through their work they've been able to change up the definition of the word astronaut no longer do you have to train for months years even a lifetime to put on a space suit and orbit the earth now you just have to have enough money. ABC's Sherry Preston has more on how the dream of touching the stars has become a reality for those with a big enough bank account.
16: Space,
19: the final frontier.
20: Long before astronauts landed on the moon in 1969, people had been dreaming of traveling to the stars.
19: These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five year mission.
20: Star Trek romanticized space travel. Now, technology's made it possible for some of us, including the real-life Captain Kirk, to actually go there. To
19: boldly go where no man has gone before. No.
20: But what does it mean when only the very richest on the planet can actually leave the planet for fun? NASA astronaut Jeff Hoffman, who's flown on numerous space shuttle missions,
21: is all for it. I'm very supportive of all of these private space activities. if. The infrastructure in low Earth orbit ultimately can be sustained by the private sector. NASA can then just buy services like they're doing from SpaceX now for launches.
20: In case you don't know by now, the three big companies vying to get regular people, well, regular people with a lot of money into space, are SpaceX, owned by Tesla founder Elon Musk. Blue Origin, owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, and Virgin Galactic, owned by Virgin Group founder Richard Branson. If we were keeping score, and who isn't, Branson's design is far different from the other two, and the execution has had some setbacks as well. So for now, we'll focus on SpaceX and Blue Origin. In September, Elon Musk awarded entrepreneur Jared Isaacman a three-day rocket trip around the Earth for an undisclosed ginormous amount of money. He used the flight as a fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Hospital and invited former patient Haley Arsenault as one of his guests.
22: This is the largest window ever flown in space. We can put our head in and fit multiple crew members and see the entire perimeter of the Earth, which just gives such incredible perspective, and the views, I have to say, are out of this world.
20: About a month after that flight, Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos took Captain Kirk, William Shatner, up for free on one of his famous 11-minute rides to the edge of Earth's orbit. for which Shatner was, of course, eternally
6: grateful. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened.
20: The two flights were vastly different. Listen as former Marine pilot and ABC News aviation contributor Steve Ganyard describes the SpaceX flight before it took off to the excursion on the Blue Origin pod.
17: This flight's going to go out to 360 miles. It's going to go around the Earth uh, for three days. This is sort of like the difference between the, uh, the tilt-a-whirl at the, at the county fair and, uh, and Space Mountain at Disneyland. There's really no comparison.
20: Not sure about you, but I really wouldn't want to take a trip into space in something that's been described as a tilt-a-whirl at the county fair. Those who run these companies, however, insist they're safe, even without professional astronauts on board. Others, though, wonder. Remember Krista McAuliffe?
7: Are you in any way frightened of something like that?
23: Um, I really haven't thought of it in those terms because I see the shuttle program as a very safe program. But That's I her on The
20: Tonight show, the show with Johnny Carson, the first teacher in space, had to train for months and months before she was allowed to go up. And Kevin Cook, author of the book The Burning Blue, about the space shuttle Challenger crew, and Kristen McAuliffe says even years of planning for
6: safety couldn't avert the disaster. It's still climbing. The shuttle is still climbing, but there is a problem. There appears to be a serious problem. What's happening? There are lessons
21: to learn from what happened to Challenger, having to do with schedule pressures, having to do with political pressures. It's going to be very important uh, for us to bear in mind
4: so that we can protect the astronauts that, uh, that are the next generation of space explorers.
20: Something has gone seriously. Even with the inherent danger and all of the protocols in place, Cook says it's easy to get complacent. About spaceflight.
4: as uh, as the great physicist, the Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman, said, when he was part of the uh,
21: presidential commission investigating later, NASA had been playing Russian Roulette with these shuttle flights
20: besides safety issues there's also the whole idea of only billionaires get to travel this way well technically only billionaires can probably build the rockets millionaires could conceivably take a trip up into space for fun if it was something they really wanted to do the price tag for a spacex flight would be much more than a blue origin flight because it's a longer trip and takes you a lot further out into space Jeff Bezos won't say how much one of his 11-minute rocket rides will set you back, but he did say recently his company was nearing $100 million in private ticket sales. The future king of England, Prince William, is one of many criticizing the whole idea of rich people spending so much money to explore those worlds when the one we're sitting on right now is burning up.
24: We need... Some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live.
20: An opinion in Scientific American from September, written by Adler Planetarium astronomer Lucian Wallowitz, reads, privately funded spaceflight is geared to perpetuate inequalities in space and on Earth. The piece is entitled Don't Count on Billionaires to Get Humanity into Space. Scientific American also wonders how much of the soot from commercial spaceflights will actually change global temperatures. Back on Earth, though, former NASA astronaut Jeff Hoffman sees only good in letting more people, even rich ones, ride on rockets and experience the vastness of space. He agrees with William Shatner. Seeing it does make you emotional.
21: I think it's great that this is going to become available to more people. You know, granted, for now, you have to be pretty rich to have that experience. Would you go up
20: again now on, on SpaceX?
21: Don't tell my wife, but I'd go up in a second. If someone were to give me $50 million, I don't know if I'd spend it on another space flight. On the other hand, I'd sure love to go up into space again. It's an incredible experience.
16: At Evernorth Health Services,
1: Welcome to On The Move, a look at the latest in transportation technology and all the different ways we get around planet Earth and beyond. From the Museum of Flight in Seattle, here's Alex Stone.
2: It is here where the history of aviation surrounds. From the earliest days of flight to modern aircraft like the Boeing Dreamliner, they have the actual planes here on site. Children's eyes, and adults for that matter, are big as they move through this museum which is on the edge of Boeing Field. All around the museum, brand new planes are being tested by Boeing like that one taking off. Ted Hutter is an aviation historian and works here at the Museum of Flight.
0: This is what we call the Great Gallery, uh, kind of for obvious reasons. It's a seven-story, mostly glass enclosure with about three dozen airplanes of various sizes and ages. This is called the Gossamer Albatross, and there were two of them made, and they were built to be the first plane to be human-powered flight across the English Channel. This is uh, what we call the Aviation Pavilion. Uh, obviously, it is a pavilion. It's over three acres in footprint, and it's where we keep all of our big airplanes, the, the bombers, the airliners, that sort of thing. It tells a history of commercial aviation from the 1930s up until the present with a 787 Dreamliner. And while this is
2: aviation of times gone by, this has led to what's to come. The industry says that like the cars many drive today, flight will be on electric airplanes in the not too distant future. Batteries powering flight. Tell me where we are right
25: now. Uh, so we're in what we call hangar number one, which is the assembly hangar for our Alice
2: prototype. Omer Barry Ojai created Aviation. He's now the CEO of the company, leading the way in battery-powered planes. Not tiny planes, but small commercial airliners, likely around nine passengers who will, if everything at Aviation goes according to plan, be flying without any fuel on board and totally on batteries. We're
25: literally fitting in the battery into its final position on the aircraft
2: uh, as we speak. In fact, on the day we visited Aviation in Arlington, Washington at the hangar where they're building the new aircraft called Alice, the gigantic battery had just arrived and crews were making slight modifications to the plane to fit the battery on.
25: Yeah, so the folks in the what look like hazmat suits are not really hazmat, they're just clean and they're working around um, fixing some of the composite parts when putting the battery together with the aircraft. The battery takes up 50% of the maximum takeoff weight of the aircraft. That's a lot, right? So it's 8200 and a bit pounds and getting it there creates all sorts of unique deformations. The battery is actually an
2: integral part of the aircraft itself and the weight Carries load. Airlines all over the world say electric planes will be the next big thing in aviation. Aviation is one of the companies on the runway to electric flight. In 2019, the company revealed a prototype of the Alice aircraft at the Paris Air Show. After keeping many aspects of Alice fairly secret for two years, we got to see it firsthand only weeks before it takes its first test flight. Its battery powered engines have been moved to the back of the aircraft, the windows are big, the wings long and skinny like a glider. The beautiful part about this plane, beside it being an awesome plane and looking
25: great, is that it makes economic sense today. It doesn't require some, you know, government subsidies or, or uh, someone to say, oh no, no, it's so important for me to go green, I'm willing to lose money for that. No. There is no reason to fly anything else as long as you don't need to fly further than 400 or 440 nautical miles.
2: 440 miles max, they're targeting and already have deals with regional or commuter airlines that fly relatively short flights. Aviation promises the cost of flying its battery powered aircraft will be a fraction of what airlines are paying right now to fly jet fuel powered planes. So per hour, we're at around
25: $100 to $120 of cost for the battery, depending on the way it's being operated and used, that's dramatically cheaper than the maintenance cost of the equivalent system.
2: The electric jet propulsion unit, what you would think of as the engine and propeller, is made by a sister company called Magni X, which is testing its units nearby. It's a
25: plane. It acts like a plane. It has sticks, it has a throttle, it has the behavior of a plane meaning if something malfunctions it fails safe it continues operation and it brings you to a landing because there are so many redundancies built into it but it's a plane built in the 21st century so we have fast responses controlled or at least protected by an envelope protection system. So the most advanced autopilot system you can find in the in the likes of a 787 or A350, you would find in a plane that size.
2: And for Barry Ohio, it was important for it not to look like a giant drone, but for it to look like an airplane so pilots can easily fly it like any other aircraft. It could land at any airport and passengers will feel comfortable flying in it, but it will release zero missions into the air at a time when airlines are scrambling to cut their output. When the plane lands, it would recharge, just like an electric vehicle, as passengers are unloading and loading, then it could take off again.
25: An airport today is an unpleasant experience. It's noisy, it's smelly, the jet fuel, and you know in your mind it's very, very polluting, right? So you have fuel brought in, it's the expensive kind. Even if it's sustainable aviation fuel, which we don't have enough of, um, it's just the whole logistics of it feels wrong this changes a lot of things this makes the plane is dramatically quieter not right now because we're working on it but once ready an electric plane can optimize propeller noise better because the the motors are more efficient in a wider band of rpms so you can do better you can be roughly 10 to 15 dbs quieter which means you're anywhere between half to 50 times quieter. Mm-hmm. If you're quieter and you're non-polluting and you can fly this closer to homes, maybe living next to a small airstrip is no longer a reason for your property to you know, lose value. Rather it's, hey, I can get some services there. I actually care to be close to that airport. I think it will bring aviation closer to our everyday transportation. Solutions.
2: He knows bigger non startup companies could decide to focus on battery powered planes, but he says they're not in the way aviation is. And if they want to, he says, great, go for it. I think the
25: industry, as many industries, needs a kick in the butt. It needs someone to come in and say, hey, we've built it. We're actually eating part of your lunch. Maybe it's not the lunch you thought you'd be losing because, you know, we're not competing with a 737 just, just yet, but it's When you look at the big picture, wouldn't you rather, especially if the flight experience is great, quiet, not smelly and very
2: relaxed because it's augmented and stable, wouldn't you rather fly this? For now, battery-powered planes will be smaller. The technology for batteries to power larger aircraft like a 737 or bigger isn't there yet, but he believes in the future that tech will be there. And it's electric vehicles on the ground allowing for investors and customers to realize battery-powered flight is not as scary as it was only a few years ago
25: i think the revolution that we're seeing in the auto industry plays a huge part in our ability to bring this to market and to get that kind of social acceptance you're referring to i think the fact that people are used to seeing cars you know go electric they're safe they are actually usable in the real world you don't worry too much about oh you know range is this or that No, this is just the way you plan your trip now and so many hundreds of thousands of people are used to it.
2: Among the companies that have signed on with aviation, DHL Express expects its first zero emission electric Alice plane in 2024. Cape Air, a New England based regional airline is preparing to fly without fossil fuels on Alice planes as well. So when will that first test flight come? Before the end of this year, I'm not going to give you a day because it is. It
25: does tend to be rainy. The program will develop to uh, quite a few production candidates accumulating those flight hours needed to get the plane certified and then to get
2: it in the hands of our operators. And on that day when it does fly, Omer Barry Ohai will likely be on board. He says it will be emotional as a man who started the company with his co-founder and got the funding to move forward.
25: I, I would guess there will be a lot of tears in general beforehand and then,
2: yeah, some tears of joy. <laughs> It wasn't very long ago we saw the pictures jets lined up wingtip to wingtip sitting idle in the desert and parked on deserted runways from coast to coast. Some striking images of an otherwise mobile nation shut down by a worldwide pandemic. But while most of the flying public had its feet on the ground, reporter E.J. Becker in Kansas City says not far from those long runways, abandoned jetways and empty terminal buildings. Plenty of people were still on the move and flying high.
19: And every one of them has a story.
26: I had a job I didn't particularly enjoy at that moment in time, and I was looking for a way to find something I really loved.
19: A very specific story about how they got started.
26: My husband said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think I'd like to fly an airplane. And his reaction was, well, then go to the airport. So I picked up my car keys, walked out the door, drove to my local general aviation airport and started flying lessons that very same day.
19: And Elizabeth Tennyson has been flying ever since. I am probably one of those weirdos that has known what
17: he's wanted to do his whole life. In fact, I ran into one of these the other day I had a paper that one of my folks had kept that I'd done in fourth or fifth grade talking about I wanted
19: to be an airline pilot. Chris Kirk got his license not long after he was old enough to take the tests. And once he did, he celebrated the best way a pilot can by flying with his first passenger.
17: I was 17, just got my license. So I took the plane home and I made a, I made a couple of calls. And my only person that was available to go fly with me, because so I want to, you know, you want to go take somebody flying. I called my grandma. She's like, they're lickety split. And, you know, I will always remember that, that she took the time to, you know, come out and be with her 17 year old grandson and go flying. I'm going to cry her and have it. You know, it was,
7: just, it was just the coolest thing. That first year, most of my students thought I was a pilot. But Gene Poole wasn't. I'd always wanted to fly, just I didn't really have the funds. And if I wasn't going to do it for a living, it's a very expensive hobby. Gene, like Elizabeth and Chris, was fascinated by flying. And
19: all three of them have dedicated some part of their professional and personal lives to sharing that fascination, that love of aviation with others, in hopes of growing the general aviation community and getting more people to fly small airplanes. You know, the ones that buzz overhead on Sunday afternoon when you look up and think, I wonder where they're going. Apparently, they're going everywhere.
26: I think one of the things that we've seen in general aviation during the pandemic is the big uptick in people who are looking to use GA for personal transportation, for business transportation, and just for the joy of it. It's a means of getting around that really has no comparison.
19: Elizabeth Tennyson took that seemingly random decision to go to the airport one afternoon and has turned it into a career focused on growing GA, and it's working.
26: To give you an idea, between April of 2020 and February of 2021, there were actually more people flying general aviation aircraft than there was air carrier traffic.
19: Elizabeth helps lead the AOPA Foundation and its You Can Fly program. The AOPA is like AAA for pilots and airplane owners, and the foundation gives out millions of dollars in scholarships to help people learn to fly.
26: There are lots of scholarships out there to help young people learn to fly. I even hear from groups that tell me they have trouble giving away their scholarship money.
19: The overwhelming majority of the AOPA scholarships goes to kids, but that's just the beginning. The AOPA has taken flying two kids via
7: STEM education and that's where Elizabeth's story intersects what happens is they get in the class and we take them up in the air with Gene Poole you know if you put somebody who hasn't been a pilot up in the air and they can't think of anything else well they're probably future pilots
19: one summer when Gene was at Oshkosh a massive annual aviation convention he happened upon an AOPA seminar about its four-year high school curriculum and Gene got on board faster than a
7: first-class passenger jones in for champagne and caviar before takeoff. You know, here's a free curriculum, and I thought, I'm a math teacher. If I can get kids interested in what math is used for, which is what they always ask, that's all I wanted to get out of it. Gene's school in suburban Minneapolis is one of
19: 300 across 44 states teaching aviation to kids, almost 10,000 kids every year. The four-year program starts with the history of aviation. And the whole thing is very hands-on.
7: We'll make a hot air balloon out of tissue paper and
19: we'll launch it. They learn about the Wright brothers, the man who inspired them. And by the time they get to
7: year two, they're getting pretty serious. So in the second and third year, it's really essentially ground school for pilot training. And the kids that take advantage of it, let's just say some of them really take off. My first pilot was a young girl. And she got up in a helicopter and she hovered that thing first time just flying it. And the CFI said she acts like she's been flying this plane for years. Her reaction was, it's just like a video game. (laughs) Going up in the air and learning to fly and realizing she could do that gave her a confidence I never never expected And, and she's a different person as a result of that.
19: Since he started teaching aviation, three of his kids have soloed. Two are now pilots, two more are in training right now, and one is doing it on an AOPA scholarship. But Elizabeth Tennyson says the kids aren't the only ones taken off.
26: We have a teacher who has been with us for several years.
7: Three guesses as to who that teacher is. AOPA has 20 teacher scholarships a year.
26: He told me he applied for the scholarship three times before he actually got it.
7: It was during COVID, and it was in May on my birthday, actually. (laughs) Chokes me up a little. We were at my house, all my kids were there, my grandkids, and my cell phone went off and said, congratulations. It was from the AOPA. And while the schools were closed
26: down, I spent the summer learning to fly. His kids in his classes would come out to the airport on weekend mornings and watch him take his lessons and critique his landings.
19: And the students have learned some valuable lessons from their teachers' teachable moments. I had a
7: runway incursion on my first solo. It was interesting.
19: Gene lined up to land on the wrong runway.
7: The FAA frowns upon that. It could have been a really bad thing, but it wasn't. I had to fill out a nine-page report. I was able to share that with my students and say, you know, the the FAA is not there to hassle you. And so I got to go through that whole process with the kids. And when he
19: went for his checkride, where you fly with an examiner and if you pass, you become a pilot? Gene
7: didn't pass. Going through that, then I could talk to the students about how you overcome failure. You just go up and do it again. He passed the second time around and does note, with a hint of pride,
19: that his kids who've made it to the checkride all passed their first time out. Once you have that license, Elizabeth Tennyson says the sky's the limit.
26: The ability to fly your own aircraft is really the ability to have freedom.
19: I
17: think that's why so many people are migrating over to general aviation because of the freedom that it offers.
19: Pilot Chris Kirk says the pandemic has highlighted the freedom and flexibility that general aviation offers.
17: Freedom from you know having to sit next to somebody who might be sick. It's just the pleasure of going back and forth on your own.
19: Especially when airline schedules have been cut so dramatically. And Chris would know. He flies the 737 for a major airline. When he's not at 37,000 feet, He's on the ground at his company, Wild Blue, helping the little guy buy and sell small airplanes. Maybe in the past, like, you know, it'd be nice to get my
17: license and it'd be nice to go out and, and learn how to do that. And maybe I could use it for my business. And then all of a sudden, again, it's kind of that awakening thing where they see that, oh my gosh, you know, I can, I could really do this. So
19: the next time you hear it and you look up and you see that small airplane and wonder, where are they going? They could be headed out to grab a $100 hamburger. It's taking your your personal airplane out and enjoying, you know, in this case, a meal. They call it a $100 hamburger because you're not just paying for the ground beef, you're paying for the fuel to fly to get there too. You know, those $100 hamburgers are fun when you're taking somebody that's never done it before. It could be a high school student on a discovery flight as part of their aviation class, or a newly minted pilot building hours on their way to a job with the airlines. Or maybe they're just out looking for the answer to that age old question,
7: Why should the birds have all the fun?
19: Either way, they're on the move, and maybe you're next. E.J. Becker, ABC News, Kansas City.
1: You're listening to On The Move from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Alex Stone.
2: It requires several hundred hours of training to become a plane or a helicopter pilot, but what if you could learn to fly in just a few hours without a wing or rotor keeping you in the air? It's possible, and some specialized public servants are doing just that. ABC's Andy Field tells us it involves strapping yourself to a jet engine.
6: Admit it. You've watched Buzz Lightyear and at least thought about saying...
17: To infinity! And beyond
6: Come on, it's the 21st century. We should all be able to just strap on a jetpack and go. Richard Browning actually does, several times a week.
27: It's pretty hard to describe, but it is, I think, the closest you can get
6: to that dream, and that is flying. Richard does it with just one small jet hooked to his back, and two more strapped to each arm. You have this ludicrous amount of
27: freedom. You, you literally can just step off with one foot and you just go where your mind takes
6: you. Richard Browning wasn't always a rocket man. He worked as a major petroleum company oil trader, making a great living with a dream of turning folks from Tony Stark into Iron Man, well, at least the flying part and his earlier attempts Looks a lot like the movie's workshop scene.
4: In three, two, one.
6: In
27: 2016, and you can see
6: this, you know, all over our social media and YouTube
27: channel, you can see a lot of the visuals of me, frankly, falling over repeatedly at a farmyard, trying to marry up about a thousand horsepower of gas turbine propulsion to the human body, mostly unsuccessfully, but then we made pretty quick progress on working out where that should go and how you could make it so intuitive. It's pulling me all over the place. Oh, so I was, I was like vectoring everywhere. I felt some good wind change. It does not look like it should work at all. And yet there is, you know, myself, one of the team, or, you know, one of my clients who is just hovering there in perfect, serenity looking as relaxed as you like yeah
8: don't worry now Please you think
27: right, richard fine. browning would be a daredevil to strap on jets and fly okay. i am not a risk taker i'm not somebody who, like goes bungee jumping or skydiving or anything like that i mean i've done most of those kind of things but i i don't frankly really enjoy them a huge amount i, I think part of our success and delivering all of those events and working with the military and search and rescue in this you know wonderful journey we're on is because under the surface we take this extremely seriously and we are deep in the science and engineering of what we're doing. And so we do our absolute utmost to try and manage that risk. And what about being so
6: close to those
27: hellishly hot jet engines? when they're running full bore, um, you can hold your hand a quarter of an inch away from even the side of the exhaust and the radiated heat is nothing. Now, if you point the exhaust at something for a long time, firstly, you'll just blow away whatever it is. You could point it at a pool of gasoline and all it'll do is just blow the gasoline away that we're not even burning something like gasoline. So it is either jet fuel or diesel, but both have the same very benign calm characteristics when it comes to fire.
6: But at full throttle, it blasts a lot of air down and you up. Richard Browning's written about it in a book called Taking on Gravity, a guide to inventing the impossible from the man who learned to fly. His Gravity Industries company just outside London has trained hundreds to do just that. He says it doesn't take long to learn.
27: You can just play with the trigger and feel the power. Your brain is brilliant at balance. So yeah. the the leap I made was to say that why not use your brain as the balance computer and your as your and your body as the flight structure? The rear one lifts a lot of your weight and a lot of the equipment. The arm ones are just left feeling like you're leaning on a worktop, you know, like leaning on a sort of kitchen sink. So we've trained Of the four or five hundred people or so been through our system in the UK and the US, we've trained a a vast majority of those to do a pretty good job of hovering
6: within a morning. That
27: power level you've got now, imagine if I was turning this way, what would happen if I blew the thrust back? Oh yeah, i come back.
6: The Gravity Industries YouTube channel resembles a movie studio special effects reel. Navy specialists effortlessly lifting off chase boats landing on aircraft carriers, paramedics jetting over trees and mountains to rescue stranded hikers. Gravity's jetpack is great for short hops, but riskier if you think the sky's the limit. And we just- fly in a manner
27: where we would reluctantly accept a fall from. We don't fool ourselves in thinking we could survive, you know, flying at 100 feet, 200 feet, and then have a problem. We just terrain hug. So from an entertainment, military, and even search and rescue perspective, that's really what you need to be doing anyway.
6: Richard and his team will train you. A half day at his London office or on the road in Los Angeles costs $3,000. And you can buy one of his jet suits. Just 400000 But you can't bring it home.
27: Yeah, we don't really like selling them and even when we have sold them we've kept the equipment on our site um right. it's more about giving people the experience and getting you know training them to fly and then we can make the equipment available for them wherever they want but unless you're a paramedic or a special forces operator we
6: tend to prefer not to build them richard's gravity industry has competitors one with a wing that glides and jets attached where the pilots drop from an airplane richard browning hopes to keep making them smaller and even easier to fly Just like Buzz.
17: To infinity
6: and beyond! Just not too high. With Richard Browning in London, I'm Andy Field, ABC News, Washington.
2: With all of these changes happening in transportation technology that we've been talking about, there's now a shift in thinking on how to best protect the environment as the U.S. heads into the next frontier... ABC's Michelle Franzen takes a look at a national program from the 1930s that could serve as the model.
28: Conservation is getting a makeover and could serve as a wider umbrella for traditional projects, you know, digging trenches and building dams to new ones like lithium farms used to making those high-tech batteries. And the
16: time is right.
28: John o. McKinney is president and CEO for the Montana Conservation Corps. He heads the adult and youth crews in the state-led program modeled after the national one carved out nearly a century ago, Franklin D. Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps.
21: In the 21st century, the
0: impact of a changing climate on their very existence and the health of the planet makes this much more
16: urgent for young people.
28: The national program ended, but a network of state and local nonprofit organizations remain. And there's a growing movement to create a national climate civilian corps, encompassing the original CCC with the more recent AmeriCorps program. Nicole Primo is a recent college graduate and spent part of her summer
3: serving as an AmeriCorps youth crew leader. very interested and passionate about the conservation of both our country and our world in general. So I thought this would be a great opportunity. She says it was also a good outlet for what she calls climate
28: anxiety for her generation.
10: It's a strong feeling of we need to change something and we need to figure out how.
28: Creating a new network where the nation's youth along with communities and businesses are engaged not only with the environment, but with one another.
0: At some level, all of our human interaction is having repercussions at that we don't think about in our daily life.
28: Gabriel Headley is a high school senior and summer youth crew member for Montana's Conservation Corps. He says that experience changed his perspective.
29: It kind of like shook
0: my world a little bit, like my foundation kind of cracked a bit. I Now I can't like help but walk around in our average society without seeing things as how was this affecting my land? Towards the end, we all kind of came to the same conclusion of we all have different roles. At the end of the day, we're all fighting for the same thing.
28: Martha Ross is a senior fellow at Brookings Metro and wrote about an emerging climate civilian corps, saying it's long overdue.
13: A civilian climate corps would be a huge win if it's enacted for climate mitigation efforts and for the communities that benefit from greater climate resilience.
28: Ross says the diversity of the program and people can play a major role as the nation emerges from the pandemic and tackles the climate. That includes building on the bipartisan infrastructure deal just signed into law.
13: The Climate Corps can also serve as a pipeline for that to help develop workers for those types of jobs that are going to be growing and that we'll need in the future.
28: Back in Montana, McKinney says as conservation efforts modernize, he still sees the original spirit of Roosevelt's Conservation Corps.
21: The values of young people doing purposeful work, learning to work
16: together and resolve conflicts, those things remain just as true today as they were in 1933 for the young men who were facing the challenges of the Great Depression.
28: The Conservation Corps, on the move and adapting, I'm Michelle Franzen ABC News
2: I'm super excited I want to introduce you to two men who are at the top of their game if you love travel and the experience of traveling these guys are building empires, bringing the good and bad of traveling to fans all over the world. While your kids are playing, I don't know, Roblox online, millions of adults are on YouTube watching their travel videos
29: or travel vlogs or video logs. Good morning, guys from Dubai Airshow. Today, I'm gonna show you something amazing. And
2: I fully admit, I'm just gonna put it out there. I am one of their biggest fans. I have become obsessed watching the work of Sam Chewy.
29: This is extravagant. This is like a double sweets now.
2: And on another Single YouTube channel, Channel Noel Phillips.
8: I'm going to be taking the world's two longest flights pretty much back to back within 24 hours of each other. It's incredible
2: how many people are watching. Sam has close to 3 million subscribers on YouTube. Noel is nearing 300,000. Their videos get millions of views. Sam has some that have gotten over 30 million views. One about flying on a private Boeing 787 has 660 million views.
29: Oh my God. Oh my God, where I am? You know, hotel lobby?
2: Now he even sells merchandise. You can buy a t-shirt or a Sam Chui face mask. Often, but not always, Sam is showing the most elegant ways of traveling. And over on Noel Phillips' channel, he specializes in the craziest places you could fly on sometimes a rattiest of taped-together planes, like on airlines in the wilds of Africa. Oh, This is the biggest ego jump I've ever flown on. And being their biggest fan, it was a thrill that they were willing to jump on Zoom from around the world. Sam worked in finance for a sovereign wealth fund in the UAE when a few years ago he realized he could quit and make a living documenting travel on YouTube.
29: And when I started YouTube video, it was just by a coincidence, like uploading some random trip uh, experiences online. And then they say like the numbers are millions. And I was thinking like, gosh, this is uh, something incredible. There are millions of people who like to watch my stuff just like that. And it just kept
2: growing until 2018 when it became his full-time gig. Now airlines reach out to Sam, wanting him to come cover their hot new thing. When he walks through airports, people come up to say
29: hi. People, especially during the COVID time, Uh, People were not able to travel, and they lived through my video.
2: And that's the thing. It's a story. You go along with Sam. He takes you on some of the most incredible airplanes around the world, flying in
29: suites and taking showers on an Airbus A380. The best thing for Emirates first class on A380, of course, is the shower and spa. So I'm going to have a shower refresh up before landing.
2: But it's not always about the glamour. Sam has taken viewers on board planes
29: into North Korea and other not-so-nice aircraft around the world. There is always a gratitude that you want to return and show the audience the best of things that they haven't seen. Yeah, it seems
2: glamorous and adventurous, but it's not easy work. Sam posts a new video every week. That means he has to have fresh adventures to show weekly that viewers aren't seeing elsewhere. Noel Phillips has that same challenge, making compelling content on a weekly basis. He was an IT guy only a few years ago until he realized he too could make money traveling around the world. Now he has a PR person and a staff that does video editing and social media.
8: I figured that if I could actually make some videos about this and show my life, um, what it's actually like to go and do these crazy little trips, well people might actually be interested in watching them. And um, yeah, the YouTube channel kind of started and it started growing. uh, And I was finding less and less time for my main day job of working in IT. Now you find them on barely held together planes over Russia. Fairly soon it was time to walk out to our ride for today, the Marshal Novikov. This one was delivered new to the Peruvian Air Force in 1976, serving as a bomber in the Ecuadorian conflict. And yep, he flew on it. Fascinated by aviation in parts of the world that as a Westerner, we typically wouldn't visit. And it's places that we wouldn't necessarily consider to visit. And that can mean flying on planes
2: that have duct tape or in the aviation industry, speed tape all over them. Both Noel and Sam go out typically alone. In Noel's case, he's had a flight or two where they're not too happy. He's filming on board. They record everything on their journey, bring it back, and it gets put together into a 15 or 30-minute produced look at their adventure that most of us will likely never get to go on
29: ourselves. Throughout my journey, I've largely now able to do a bit of storyboarding, a bit of producing, a bit of um, you know, a bit of everything. So I am a largely a one-man show here that I think about in my head how I'm going to start a video. To produce that kind of video is not just point and shoot. You really have to think ahead of time.
2: Both have had incredible experiences. That's why they have so many viewers. So what has been the best
29: flight Sam has ever taken? I still think my Concorde supersonic flight was one of the most uh, interesting flights because I was flying... Higher than any other airplanes at fifty eight thousand feet. But with the way things are going, what could really top that? You know, as aviation continue grows and evolve, there's I haven't done zero G flights. You know, one day I might go to the space. On the crazy side of things, what has Noel's most insane
2: adventure
8: been? Mm, That's that's a tricky one. I've been on some pretty crazy flights. Um, probably the flight in Russia that I did this year was pretty crazy. And it was literally like going back in time forty years, flying on the we flown a Yak forty across Russia through a little town in the middle of nowhere. Um, You had to bring your own bags onto the plane and (laughs) when you you went on the plane and you boarded up the tail of the aircraft and things. um, Yeah, that's probably the craziest adventure I've done. Very rarely do I ever say this, but this really does not feel safe.
2: Both men, their followings
8: growing as we get to live
2: through Sam Chewy and Noel Phillips on YouTube. A huge honor to meet both men documenting air travel around the world.
21: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's
10: a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
21: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
1: Welcome to On The Move, a look at the latest in transportation technology and all the different ways we get around planet Earth and beyond. From Boeing Field near Seattle, here's Alex Stone.
2: Welcome, it is here where the dream of flight has come alive in the U.S. Under these often cloudy, rainy skies of Seattle where Boeing tests many aircraft before we ride on them around the world. Brand new Boeing 737s are lined up wingtip to wingtip, getting ready to be flown to airlines that have bought them. The final tests are being done here to make sure they're ready to go. But this is also the place where Boeing is testing the future of aviation, what might make your next flight safer, cleaner burning, or more comfortable. This brand new 737 MAX taking off may say Alaska Airlines on the side, but it's not a normal airliner right now. It will be when Boeing is done in a few weeks using it as a test bed they call their eco-demonstrator. Ray, tell me what we're looking at here.
22: Well, what we're looking at here is our uh, newest eco-demonstrator. It's our eighth eco-demonstrator in partnership with Alaska Airlines on a 737-9.
2: So this is essentially a brand new MAX aircraft, right? And there are tests on board and you're figuring some stuff out of what aviation in the future is going to be like.
22: That's correct. Uh, This airplane, it's a pre-delivery airplane. It will go into service next year. And what we're doing is we are going to be testing on this airplane for about five to six months with about 20 different technologies focused on sustainable aviation.
2: Basically, on board Boeing's Eco-Demonstrator, they've removed all of the regular passenger seats. Part of the plane has replacement thin seats in it, and other parts of the aircraft have instruments, computers, and racks of equipment. They fly this plane all over the world, conducting tests that they're running on board. It's been all over the U.S. and even to Europe.
22: Okay, so come on, on board the airplane. Watch your step.
2: Looks like a brand new plane walking in the. Whoa, but then you turn the corner, it's not your normal plane in here. Not a normal plane at all, with all the test equipment inside. Ray Lutters is program manager of the Eco Demonstrator.
22: The Eco Demonstrator program's been around for about a decade. Um, we uh, take innovative technologies out of the lab, put it on an airplane, and fly them around. Uh, to really help accelerate our learning and um, understanding of sustainable uh, technologies to help our products and services and ultimately the the environment.
2: It's been around for about a decade, but the eco demonstrator is only on a plane for a few weeks to a few months because then that brand new plane is turned over to the airline they're borrowing it from. In this case, Alaska, and in a few weeks, all of the equipment will be removed, seats will be put in, and Alaska will get its plane. Until then, it's Boeing's to test items that could be used in the future of aviation.
22: We're testing about 20 technologies this year. I'm going to show you just a few today. We'll show you a little five, sneak peek of what's coming. Five of those. Yeah. And, um, and we we have a mission statement It's innovate, collaborate and accelerate. So what does that mean? It means we take those innovative technologies out of the lab. We accelerate our learning through working collaborations with government agencies, academia, suppliers and then we accelerate the most promising of those onto our airplanes quicker.
2: As a Fly the Eco demonstrator, engineers in the back sit at decks of computer screens, watching all kinds of flight performance. There's a camera in the cockpit so they can see everything the pilots are doing. They put the plane through tests to see how all of the experiments in this flying laboratory perform in different flight conditions. They
22: can look at real-time data, um, what the altitude, any types of parameters of what the airplane's flying or how the systems are operating on board the airplane. On
2: a previous ECO demonstrator, they tested and learned the benefits of the split winglet now seen on 737 aircraft, the V-shaped end of the wing which cuts down on fuel burn and therefore cuts down on carbon dioxide output.
22: So, um, So our first technology here, it is our recycled carbon fiber sidewall panels.
2: So they've taken carbon fiber from waste that came off the line, making the bigger Boeing 777, and they're trying to determine if making the interior walls of the 737 MAX using that carbon fiber can cut down on weight and make the cabin of the plane quieter. To do that, they have computers and microphones all over the back of the plane measuring the sound coming through those test panels. To
22: see that it performs as well, if not better, than our standard um, sidewall panels.
2: They're also testing a new anti-collision light, that red blinking light you see on the top and bottom of planes to figure out if a new low-profile design would cut down on wind drag that then cuts down on fuel burn. By the way, the plane flies on 50% sustainable fuel.
22: All of our um, flights are flown on a blend of sustainable aviation fuel and we really try to push the limit to get up to the 50 50- 50 blend, so that's 50% sustainable aviation fuel to 50% Jet A, and that is the maximum certified blend.
2: Moving along in the plane, one whole window has been replaced by what they call a plug, a panel with wires and hoses hooked up to it where they're testing the air at airports around the world to see could every airplane do that to better know the air quality around the globe if all planes were testing the air? So
22: the intent someday is to figure out how to get this system smaller and how how would we be able to incorporate this on um, our flying airplanes that will just, you know, they're going to the airport, so they would just be collecting so this data. So all
2: over the world, they'd be pulling in the data.
22: Exactly, and you know, this is um, in front of our engine, so it's not gathering any of, you know, the emissions coming from the engine. Yeah. It's So this is what's jocative. in the
2: environment at each individual airport.
22: Exactly, exactly.
2: Normally we'd be going kind of into first class here, but there are giant racks of computers and different things and routers. They've got cameras set up looking outside of the plane so computers can analyze how ground crews do their work to figure out could airlines and those who service their planes have more efficient ground operations if they change the way they did things.
22: Fueling, maintenance activity, anything happening on the ground and the idea is that we're going to build up an algorithm that's going to enable the operators or the airliners to figure out how quick are their turnaround times? Where they can they build in more efficiencies? And when we talk about operational efficiency, we typically talk about when we take off, fly to landing. Well, now we're expanding it onto the ground as well. So, you know, you fly up, and instead of you're in a holding pattern until you have a gate that's open well now you'll know exactly when that gate is going to be open and you can make your entire operational efficiency and entire system
2: because how great would it be to not have to wait for a gate when you land it's one of the most annoying things you land early and then you have to wait for a gate you end up not being early at all from here we move up into the cockpit of this boeing 737 max
22: what's really i think fun and cool about this um this test is that we're not really designing it for today's pilots We're designing it for a generation from now because everybody's really used to using it, what? An iPad, right? There's no buttons on it. So we need to make sure that we are developing technology that the next generation is truly going to utilize.
2: And that's why on board this plane, they're testing iPad-like touchscreens to replace a flight management computer in the cockpit that currently on planes is an old screen with clunky buttons next to it. They've replaced that FMS with a touchscreen version to see how much more comfortable and usable it is for pilots. But before anything is flying passengers, it has to be tested over and over and over again. You know,
22: it has the opportunity to save weight, which is something we're always trying to do because we're trying to get the airplane to operate as efficiently as possible. And every little amount, you know, can help in that area.
2: While Boeing has the aircraft, it flies almost every day as a test bed for the future of aviation. Ray Lutter says it's exciting traveling around the world, seeing our ex-eco-demonstrator planes, knowing they helped develop the new technology we have today with more to come.
22: Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm so excited to be part of this program. I've had the privilege of being part of the eco-demonstrator program from the very beginning. And uh, just knowing that what we're doing is making a difference in this industry, it, it just makes me so proud.
2: You've probably seen them, or maybe you're one of them. Classic car enthusiasts line up in strip mall parking lots to show off their antique rides, but that might be changing. ABC's Mike Dubusky takes a look at how a new generation of gearheads
30: is remembering the cars of the future. There's a bit of a chill in the air, brown leaves are crunching underfoot, and that means it's the perfect time of year to drop by your local classic car show. There's a couple things you need to know if you've never been to a small-town car show. First, these aren't the big convention center-filling auto shows that take over Detroit, Geneva, or Tokyo every year. Kristen Lee, deputy editor of automotive news site The Drive, says these shows are the down-home community gatherings where you throw on some tunes and you remember the good old days. The
10: vibe is usually really, really chill. It usually happens pretty early in the morning, on the weekend, people bring their dogs. They get all their cars polished up and they come and they park and they kind of just walk around and admire everybody's ride.
30: This particular show in Queens, New York is your prototypical example. A couple of Mustangs, a bunch of second and third generation Corvettes, a smattering of Chevy Chevelles, older men congregating around open hoods to reminisce as songs from their youth play over the loudspeaker. (laughs) But if you've been to enough of these shows, you might start to notice something.
10: For me as a kind of a show-goer for so long, it's kind of felt like a gate-kept community. Like, no one obviously has turned me away, but a lot of the shows that I grew up going to was a lot of people my parents' age. You know, bringing supercars and it was fine as a spectacle, but it never really looked like something I could participate in.
30: And an older audience tends to focus on older cars too.
31: There's always been this line of delineation at 1973 with the oil crisis. That's Bradley
30: Brownell, a writer at the automotive website Jalopnik. He says 1973 is an important year in car culture because it marks the beginning of what some call the malaise era. New regulations from the federal government designed to crack down on poor fuel economy resulted in a 1970s car market decidedly less powerful than the decade prior, and echoes from that time reverberated for decades.
31: Traditional car enthusiasts will tell you that after 73 everything is garbage, it's terrible, Emissions controls, fuel injection, it's impossible to work on.
30: But Brownell isn't your traditional car enthusiast. He's the co-founder of a car show that caters specifically to vehicles that came after the
31: malaise era. We only allow cars built from 1980 to 1999. The show is called
30: Radwood, and you won't find any Plymouth Barracudas or Chevy Bel Airs here. Instead, chrome fins and white wall tires are supplanted by car phones and pop-up headlights. The swinging sock hop is replaced by pulsating synthesizers. Think less Flash Gordon or Flashdance.
31: It was the cars we owned, the cars we could afford, the cars
30: we could work on. For Brownell, it all started with one of his own cars, a 1983 Porsche
31: 944. I loved that car, and I invested so much time and effort and occasionally money into that car. But the energy that went into the little
30: Porsche wasn't always appreciated.
31: I took it to a car show, and when I went to pay the entry, they were like, are you sure you want to come into this car show? You, You know what we're doing here, right? I was like, yeah, it's, it's a Porsche. I, I want to be involved. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll just park you over under that tree or something. Like Nobody wants to see your garbage car.
30: And that's where the idea for Radwood was born.
31: I kind of had this feeling like there needs to be a place for people like me where I have so much emotional investment in this car and I love this car but it's kind of a misfit.
30: Brownell's vision for the show was to create a space for those misfit cars, and as it turns out, they weren't such misfits after all.
31: The enthusiasm for the 80s and 90s has always existed. There have always been people who loved their Impulse RS or their Mercure XR4Ti or whatever. He
30: says the types of cars you'll see at Radwood vary based on region, but can feature everything from Geo Metro convertibles all the way up to Ferrari 348s and Lamborghini Diablos.
31: That's the crazy thing about Radwood is literally everything from that era, is welcome and encouraged and and appreciated. Brownell says
30: Porsches are
31: often popular as are
30: BMWs.
31: You know, it conjures feelings of the 80s, it conjures feelings of the yuppie uh, Hollywood crowd. And there's another car you're likely to
30: come across at Radwood. One that has a certain timelessness.
20: Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, Are you telling me
12: that you built a time machine?
31: Kind of a DeLorean? On average, every
30: show has one. And it's not just the cars that are setting their flux capacitors back a few decades. Here's Lee again.
10: Bradwood kind of embodies um, like a very powerful, nostalgic vibe. So people play a lot of 80s music, people dress up in 80s attire.
30: And some people really commit to the bit.
10: There was this one guy who... Uh, got busted at the airport because he had a briefcase full of fake cocaine that he was bringing as a prop.
30: The first Radwood took place in Southern California in 2017. And since then, the show has traveled to more than a dozen cities across the country. Brownell says they were almost doing a show a month before the coronavirus pandemic put a damper on that in 2020. But now it's back, holding two shows this November alone. And Brownell says over the years, the show has attracted car enthusiasts from all walks of life.
31: People who weren't alive when these cars were built to people who owned them brand new.
10: These new shows feel a lot more inclusive. Um, there's a lot less gatekeeping. It feels like a safer space. Uh, and I think that's, that's also indicative of the way that automotive enthusiasm is moving as well.
30: So, Radwood fills the gap between the Malaise era and the modern one. But what about the modern era? What we're seeing in
32: in somewhat mainstream media and stuff like that is saying that car culture is dying.
30: That's Chad Kirshner, editor-in-chief of electric car news site EV Pulse. With the introduction of
32: the electric vehicle, car enthusiasts are just no longer exist. And... That's not
30: true. Kirshner says there's a new type of car enthusiasm brewing amid the shift to electric power, from Tesla-specific tuner shops in Southern California, all the way to...
32: Just random people on TikTok that I see that are electrifying chargers and challengers and all of this stuff, just homebrewing this stuff.
30: He says that homebrew maybe requires different skills, but the same passion for cars that made Radwood a success.
32: You know, sometimes hacking, sometimes it requires engineering. But what it definitely does require...
30: Is enthusiasm. That's why he teamed up with Brownell to create another car show. This one focused on all things electric. It's called Autopia 2099.
32: Retro future, the Jetsons, Buck Rogers, I guess. Electric cars were supposed to be
30: that future. Similar to Radwood, the new show isn't intended to be one of those big trade shows that manufacturers gravitate toward. This is about the enthusiasts. It's is supposed to
32: be a bunch of people hanging out and then expressing their enthusiasm for electrified propulsion, whether it is a brand new Tesla or whether it is uh, maybe somebody has a GM EV1.
31: One of the things we want to do is we want to break down the barriers of uh, fancy EV technology. We want people who are curious about EVs and how they work and how they charge to come out and meet people who actually own them and drive them every day.
30: The show is set to take place in early December in Los Angeles. As for what you'll see there, Brownell tells me they're expecting everything from EV-converted Mustangs and BMWs to an electric VW Microbus. One thing not likely to make it, though, is Brownell's own EV project car, another old Porsche that he's hoping to add
31: a Tesla motor to. So around 1,200 horsepower. Basically, his long-term goal is to die. Well, that's part of why it's not done yet. (laughs) <laughs> I'm afraid of what my own brain has thought up.
30: I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News, New York.
2: The automobile industry is changing quickly, and there are several factors at play, like advances in technology and a focus on curbing the effects of climate change. That means companies and drivers have to adapt. But it also means more options for your next set of wheels. ABC's Lionel Moise looks at the race to go all electric. Hey,
1: as I'm my in a test?
24: From songs to commercials and billboards, electric vehicles are front and center, and it's very clear the auto industry is on the move to a greener era. The biggest evolution that we've seen in cars since the invention of the car. Jim Nichols is vice president and head of product and technology consumer offer at Volvo, one of the many legacy brands completely changing their strategy. Volvo has committed to making its entire fleet electric by the year 2030 and has already released two fully electric compact SUVs, the XC 40 recharge and the C 40 recharge, making sure that there are really no compromises Uh, When it comes to switching over to an electric vehicle, you have better performance, better materials, and it has a smaller eco footprint. The company is also exploring fossil free steel. It's transitioning its plants in Europe to be carbon neutral and has committed to going leather free. A new material, which we call Nordico internally, and that material has the appearance of
17: leather, but is instead made from recycled PET bottles, water bottles, uh, recycled
24: cork. Making the shift to electric takes time, and there are more factors to consider outside of just tailpipe emissions. What emissions come from charging that electric vehicle from the power system and from manufacturing. Jeremy Mahalik is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and director of the university's Vehicle Electrification Group. We really look at four issues, uh, the technology itself, uh, what about the life cycle, where are the
18: emissions coming from and and how will they change as we transition consumer behavior including what people are willing to buy and and how they drive and finally public policy what kinds of
24: policies do we have what effect are they having professor Mahalik says policy and innovation are major drivers in the shift we're seeing in the industry and ultimately why people decide to buy an electric car the state of california has been at the forefront of going green in the u.s setting policy to ban emissions on cars and even gas powered lawn equipment, the change is being embraced by many. There's something that seems so and is so antiquated about driving a car that is spewing smoke and emissions out into the world. Joshua Jenkins lives in Los Angeles and drives a Polestar electric vehicle. He's slowly been making the transition, trading in his Kia Optima hybrid sedan for a fully plug in car. For him, it was all about the features. It has huge 20-inch wheels that are performance-based. It has yellow seat belts, so it has like a very unique look. The car comes equipped with built-in Google Assistant, so you can simply use your voice to get directions, play music, turn on the seat heaters, or ask a random question. Okay, Google, what is Oprah's net worth? The net
23: worth of Oprah Winfrey is
24: $2,600,000,000. And with rising gas prices, his pockets are happy too. A huge cost savings. The price of some fully electric vehicles slowly coming down as companies scale, but they can be more expensive than a comparable gas model. Professor Mahalik with Carnegie Mellon says research shows that balances out over time depending on how you're using your vehicle. We have looked at electric vehicles
18: for um, for ride sourcing applications like Uber and Lyft where people are. Driving a lot, and that's the best case for electric vehicles because you pay more upfront, but if you're saving a ton of money every year because you're driving so much. Uh, You're saving a ton of money switching, you know, buying electricity to to fuel it instead of gasoline.
24: Uh, That's when electric vehicles look the best. Charging is a major factor to consider when purchasing an electric vehicle. And with more automakers entering the plug-in space, more charging stations are popping up. Many electric vehicle owners are opting to install chargers in their home, like John Mitchell of DC, who bought a Tesla Model 3 after years of using public transportation. I actually had an electrician put in a supercharger in my garage. It's simple to charge it when I get home. It cost him about $1000 for the supercharger and labor to install it, but he's only seen his electric bill go up a few dollars each month. You know, honestly, I don't think I could see myself going back to gas diesel, but that might not be necessary as several ultra luxury brands are entering the EV market. Jaguar Land Rover announced it'll be fully electric by 2025. Bentley is debuting its first electric vehicle that year too and plans to have all cars assembled at its factory in Crew United Kingdom be fully electric by the year 2030. American automakers also making the transition with GM's all-electric Hummer slated for next year and the all-electric Ford F-150 pickup truck also in the pipeline. Across the globe, a major change in the way we think about the auto industry on both ends, consumers and corporations. I'm very pleased to see that many automakers are starting to expand their options into these electric vehicles. One thing companies are not leaving behind, the features and performance customers consider when buying any vehicle. Lionel Moyes, ABC News.
1: You're listening to On The Move from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Alex Stone.
2: Aviation is changing at light speed thanks to new technology from the way planes are designed to safety in the cockpit to how airlines are now flying their planes to get you a smoother, quicker flight. Historically, in the airline industry, the route you take has been calculated by humans plotting the course. But today at One Airline, artificial intelligence and machine learning are helping in the process of getting you to where you want to go when you board an alaska airlines flight you wouldn't know it but artificial intelligence is working in the background likely playing a role in the route you're about to take it may mean you'll get to where you want to go faster the plane will burn less fuel and the flight may be less bumpy all thanks to computers deciding the best route Inside Alaska Airlines' high-tech headquarters building near Seattle, in a room that looks like Mission Control, artificial intelligence is helping the airline plan
33: its flights. Flyways is probably the most exciting thing that I've come across in, uh, you know, airline technology since I can remember.
2: Pasha Saleh is head of corporate development at Alaska Airlines. He's also a pilot at the airline. Alaska has uniquely teamed up with a Silicon Valley startup to use artificial intelligence to help plan the best routes for planes to take, allowing them to go more direct and avoid things that may slow them down hours into the future like weather that hasn't yet developed or obstacles like slow traffic in front of them that doesn't yet exist the platform is a first of its kind called flyways
33: ai we found this company called airspace intelligence um, and at the time we met them which was three years ago there were only two guys Two guys uh, backed by Google, uh, granted two very smart and ambitious guys, um, but they were looking in an entirely different realm. They were designing software for driverless cars uh, to route themselves around.
2: But the creators saw their machine learning software that was being designed to better route vehicles in traffic on the ground could do the same in the air. Alaska Airlines invited them to Seattle and they began developing flyways. Diana burkett Rockow is in charge of sustainability at Alaska Airlines.
9: Flyways... Uh, helps the company optimize the routes that a dispatcher gives a pilot, which means that you can um, avoid turbulence, you can pick the most efficient route, which includes not going around things that are gonna move on, um, which includes managing uh, against other uh, aircraft congestion. Um, And so it will reduce in many cases the time of a flight, the length of time of a flight, therefore reducing the fuel burn Um, and therefore reducing the emissions. At
2: most airlines, the way it works, the routes are chosen by flight dispatchers who are humans who sit in a room and plot out the path a plane will fly based on everything they know. Using weather forecasts, they look at how busy the airspace will be that day. Flyways uses all kinds of inputs. It scans all flights in the U.S. It calculates how that one flight will work into the system with all the others that are out there. Predicting traffic and weather to suggest the most efficient way to fly and it can actually mean flying slower or even delaying a flight a bit if it will offer a more direct route avoiding weather or other traffic in the end getting there faster.
9: If you went a teeny bit slower, you were on time, you had a gate and because you went a teeny bit slower, the airplane actually burned less fuel. That might be a win win combination for both the guest and the operation and sustainability impact. So it's that tailoring that um, I think is ultimately sort of the beauty and um, uh, the potential.
2: Flyways is not replacing human dispatchers at Alaska. They're still the ones plotting the flights, but they can use or reject what Flyways suggests the route should be. It's not yet always perfect. The system is learning, but often it can shave off time or avoid turbulence that a human might not predict.
33: This is what machines are really good at, taking huge data sets. Um, and putting it together.
2: Captain Soleil says one of the biggest benefits is Flyway's ability to predict out how a single flight will be impacted
33: by many different influences. And it's saying, okay, if I plan the flight this way, I'll get a conflict six hours down the road and that flight will end up in a holding pattern. And think about your own experience. How many times have you been on a flight across the country and the pilot says, we're gonna arrive 30 minutes early, we're on track. You end up arriving 30 minutes late. It's because even as a pilot, I can tell you in that last hour, our arrival time can change by 30 minutes, and in the last 30 minutes, it can change by 20 minutes because as you approach the airport, suddenly so do a whole bunch of other flights and they send you into holding patterns, something like that. Flyways can avoid that because six hours earlier, it'll plan a flight knowing in the future you're not going to arrive at a time when others are.
2: And hours before a flight arrives in the Midwest, it can predict where thunderstorms will be, and before that plane even takes off, it can choose a route to avoid storms that have not yet developed
33: it can make flights a lot less bumpy. You're gonna be able to avoid turbulence um, more reliably, so smoother flight. Uh, seatbelt sign should be off more than it's on. Um, and again, because it's a learning-based system, machine learning-based system, it just gets better and better. Um, you know, Nothing is perfect. But when it, you know, turbulence is invisible, you really can't see it until you're in it. But Flyways has the ability to say, okay, when the weather situation was like this, we had turbulence even though it was not forecast.
2: The team at Alaska says the benefits are enormous and they would like other airlines to get on board because it would help make the aviation system safer, faster and more environmentally friendly.
9: Have everybody use it and have the FAA work on allowing us um, smoother uh, takeoffs and approaches, sort of using the airspace differently and more modernly. Um, That combination would be the real sweet spot. And part of that is sort of policy action.
2: As proof of concept, during a six-month pilot program, Flyway shaved off on average five minutes from Alaska Airlines flights and saved 480,000 gallons
33: of jet fuel. Really, when you take that level of of computational power and what is possible today with today's computers and neural networks and, and machine learning models. And you combine that with traditional aerospace know-how, we're getting really outsized results and, 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 it'll, and I'm confident it'll show it in, our, in our performance as an airline.
2: Most of us will never drive a race car, but ABC's Darielle Binger introduces us to a woman who's not only gotten behind the wheel of one, but is also breaking records driving on ice. And she's doing all she can to accelerate an end to a global problem.
23: Not too long ago, Renee Brinkerhoff was living a nice, quiet life.
13: I was a, was a mom, a wife. I home educated our four children. And then my kids went off to college, um, and I actually had some free time that I was really, really enjoying. It was in that time when I actually had some quietness in my head where I heard what I'd been saying for decades. And that's how it started.
23: And what she was saying was to do something that wasn't so quiet. I
13: realized I'd been telling myself, one day I'm going to race a car, and it's given my life a whole new direction and path.
23: And that led Renee to get a car. But not just any car. It's a
13: 1956 Porsche. And so it's my age. Very early 911 car parts and lots of original 356 parts.
23: And since then, she and Valkyrie Racing, the team that she founded, have driven that car almost around the world.
13: The, the whole goal has been to drive the car in every continent. So this is our final continent. Antarctica's coming up and then we're going to do 356 miles on the ice. We're going to start in the interior and we're going to chart our path toward the South Pole, but we will not be getting to the South Pole. It's not possible for my car.
23: So yeah, this later in life racer is putting her hobby literally in the deep freeze.
13: There are no rallies in Antarctica. So this will be our first time on the ice. And the car has been changed so that it can actually drive on the ice, quote, drive on the ice. It has skis in the front and tracks in the back. And people think, well, gosh, that just sounds like a snowmobile. Not. Nothing like a snowmobile. Our goal is to drive 356 miles. We're going to take off the skis and tracks. We're going to then put on tires and then see how fast we can go to create a land speed record.
23: Okay, if this is not impressive enough, she's using this world record attempt to slam the brakes on a global problem, child trafficking.
13: Why we're doing it is because our heart is for kids that are being trafficked around the world. And how do you make people be aware of it. How do you get people to donate to the cost? You have to do something extraordinary in this world when we are all just inundated, information overload. So to uh, get people's attention, we thought, let's do something never been done before. Let's take this car places it's never been taken before. That's a world record. And that's why we're doing it.
23: It's something that Valkyrie Racing is committed to on and off the road. I
13: personally get involved in undercover work helping local law enforcement to get evidence. Uh, We are involved in every way, time, talent, resources, everything.
23: And she says that mission was the inspiration for the team's name. We
13: named ourselves Valkyrie Racing because of what Valkyries are. So in Norse mythology, Valkyries are women warriors, brave, courageous, and they also have heart and compassion. And we just thought we if we could be modern-day Valkyries.
23: And now with her focus on driving really fast on ice, I had to ask Renee for some tips for those of us who have to get behind the wheel, not by choice, but by necessity during the winter. Uh,
13: I love driving in the snow and ice. For me, that's fun because it's hard and I love challenges. And I, I think a lot of it is don't freeze up, don't be uptight, don't have your hands all tight, don't be afraid, be confident. Just go out there and be confident and it won't be so hard.
23: I still don't want to drive on ice, but as you know, Renee loves to drive well on anything, and as far as she's concerned, it's going to be all gas and no brakes for a while. As
13: long as I'm alive, I want to keep doing this.
23: That also goes for Renee's work to end child trafficking. You can learn more about it, and you can check out that way cool ride on our website, ValkyrieRacing.com.
2: Next year, the world will celebrate the 150th birthday of the internal combustion engine, a technological marvel that changed the world. A century and a half later, most of us can't imagine life without our beloved cars and trucks. But long, long before the automobile, people were traveling by a more organic method and without physically moving an inch. ABC's Jim Ryan says a pandemic forced many of us to go back to the most basic mode of transportation of all, our own imaginations.
16: Mr. Watson asks the conductor to keep an eye on Bob because this is his first train trip alone. For much of the country's history, getting there really has been half the fun, if not more. You're on your own now, he says.
7: Here's the flying kitchen we've been hearing about, with a charming
16: stewardess to make your lunch the more delightful. Train travel would eventually give way to commercial airlines, but the view out the window was still as exciting as the thought of the destination. The
24: landscape below is a scene of never-ending change. Start the 60s right with the finest Chevy ever.
16: And when we were finally unfettered by railroad timetables or airline schedules.
15: With the kind of solid
16: comfort you enjoy. The how was just as important as the where when we turned the key. Even now, as some of the world's richest people launch their respective space tourism ventures, the novelty of a shiny new ride has not worn off. Five, four,
14: command and start. Two, one.
16: Jeff Bezos treated Star Trek's William Shatner to a trip beyond the Carmen Line. So
6: filled with emotion about what just happened.
16: But Shatner and company ended up pretty much where they started. The ride was the thing. Then came the event that sociologists and medical experts had been warning us about for decades.
28: Tonight, the governor of Washington declaring a state of emergency after the first known coronavirus death in the US. The CDC says a man in his 50s with underlying health conditions
16: Against the backdrop gone, of the pandemic, no even the ride wasn't the much fun anymore. anymore. Ma'am,
22: you have to wear your mask the whole entire flight.
16: Countless vacations, pleasure cruises and honeymoons were rendered impractical or impossible by the restrictions imposed by COVID-19. Entrepreneur John Turton saw an open door. I think this
12: should always have existed, but, you know, we didn't realize that there was a gap before COVID. Turton
16: is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Hago.
12: We kind of see Hago as your window to the world. You can kind of click on something and essentially get teleported to somewhere else.
16: Logging on to the Hago website, users can drop in on any one of hundreds of locations and situations around the world. Without setting foot outside. Gardens, uh, some people going through museums,
12: uh, some people taking you into their home to, to show you how they cook paella. It's a widespread of places.
16: Let's say you wanted to visit the amazing Moon Valley just outside La Paz, Bolivia. Renan Ibanez is your tour guide.
21: The history
16: of the formation of the Moon Valley. Look at this beautiful spot. 40,000 years
5: ago was one big internal sea. Today it's called Titicaca.
12: You know more about There this. are hundreds of even uh, local experts and, and guides around the world that are really showing thousands of people the places that they know best and, and sharing the stories about those places.
16: In Turton's universe, the destination is the thing. Visitors need only pack their own interests. So You
12: can sort by time, you can sort by location or like interest category, whether you're interested in things happening around Halloween or Christmas or history and architecture and so on. You find something that you like and you essentially book a spot and then you'll get notified when that's happening and, and a reminder to, to
16: join. Turton makes no bones about it. COVID created the travel restrictions that kept people from actually going to La Paz or pretty much anywhere else so Hago is meant to fill the void.
12: We are about a year old, and so it's definitely helped us identify the opportunity that's there.
16: What's more, he says. It's a lot of fun. You know,
12: it's not been done before. It's new. You know, we're really focused on making sure that we create something that creates a lot of value and a really strong sense of community for people and really breaks down those barriers to discovery and and just make everyone feel a bit closer together, which which I think is especially poignant Given the last couple of years,
16: he hopes that the virtual vacation is still around even after people are actually going from point A to point B. Jim Ryan, ABC News. One has to wonder as
2: companies like Facebook are promising immersive virtual worlds that we'll all live in in the future, if traveling virtually will become the way we'll all see the world.
1: On the Move was presented by ABC News correspondent Alex Stone and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio.
30: The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former
2: President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics Podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.